Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am coming to you today from New York City. In London, England, we have Corey Shockey. And in our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we have the Financial Times' Ed Luce and Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Um, our last episode ended up with a lively discussion, as those things are, of Britishisms. And Rosa, you seemed like you had one that you wanted to share well, with well, everybody. Well, I do. I have one that confuses <laughs> me a little bit. And for years I have wondered about this. The phrase, I was a bit chuffed, <laughs> because it seems to me that it's used in two opposite ways. Sometimes it's used to imply, you know, rather pleased, and other times it's used to imply rather put out. So am I wrong about that, Ed? And can you please explain the phrase, uh, a bit chuffed about that? Um, if you're chuffed, I, I always take it to mean you're happy. You're, you're quite happy. pleased. I never take it to mean the opposite. It's it's okay. it's not an ambivalent. Maybe slang. I misunderstood. So maybe somebody was saying that they were happy when they looked unhappy. Yeah, and I think chuffed. <laughs> I think chuffed probably comes from the sort of steam age of like um, trains chuffing along. It's like they they look very <laughs> Wait, cheerful. I'm gonna look this up. They look jolly. Wait they a look second. Jolly, like, Thomas, a while, like, yes. like Thomas, the train engine. That but, sounds completely implausible to me. He just is like, oh. <laughs> I just made British that up. Accent. I can make up anything. <laughs> and anybody will believe what I'm saying. I think chuff, chuff. Well, I might be wrong, but it's a very, <laughs> very good guess on my part. Yeah. I, pa- I pat myself on the back for that inspired <laughs> oh, guesswork. Wait. BBC America See, says chuffed, chuffed was used in the 16th <laughs> yes. century. Oh wow, it's pre Archaic slang. The, go, go on, Rosa. Well, I'm, I'm reading the, the to you now from the interwebs. This is unfair. And the interwebs says that the simple answer is that it means happy or pleased, indeed. Um, But it says you can also be so chuffed it takes you somewhere random. So you could be chuffed to bits, chuffed to beans, or even chuffed to little mint balls. Hmm. But it was used in 16th century archaic slang to describe a boorish, miserable person or a self-satisfied blowhard with big, ruddy jowls. And there are other newer uses of the word, and they are ruder. Ooh. Yeah, the big ruddy jails types. Ah, yeah, oh, not wow. chuffed yeah. to well, see yeah. them. <laughs> well, 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 well. I'm I'm learning I'm learning about my own etymology, and I, I'm I'm chuffed. I'm chuffed. You were you were only three hundred years off in your estimate of the origins of that. I'm get, I'm getting a little bit shirty now. Um, but <laughs> ooh, stick it up your chuff. <laughs> Uh, I think we ought to change. The weather has been terrible recently, hasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's just that the Brits always take refuge in the weather. (laughs) 
I am in London and I can affirm that Ed is right. I am homesick for the big blue skies of my California. Yeah, right. The smoke filled blue skies of California. <laughs> okay, let me, you know, we, there was a discussion that took place right before the last episode. And, and I think this would be useful. I mean, we, you know, we get down into the nitty gritty of foreign policy and national security stuff all the time here in Deep State Radio, because that's really who we are. And people tune in and they say the world is confusing. Make it clear. Even, for make us. it even but, more confusing. Yeah, well, and we do what we can. But, 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 you know, I think every once in a while, a little bit of a peek behind the scenes, like how how did Corey or Rosa or Ed get so smart? What is it that enables them to see? <laughs> David, that's an excellent question. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. And it's We've like, been how thinking can about they that. See what we don't see. You know, I mean, they don't, you know, we, we're sitting here and watching the Kardashians. I have never once gotten a a Twitter, a tweet from anybody saying that, or even remotely <laughs> like that, David. I think well, you're making people, it up. Well, Corey, I'm going to change that right time. now. People <laughs> stop me in the street all the time. But I want to, I want to, I want to know this, guys. In the past three, four months, what have you read that's really, really good? <laughs> Quite a lot of stuff. Okay, so since I was the one uh, talking about it beforehand, I will say how much I am loving reading Dave Egger's novel, Heroes of the Frontier. I think there are few American novelists who are wrestling as seriously the craziness that's going on in American culture right now, the, the sense of dislocation. There's this wonderful passage in Heroes of the Frontier where... Um, where the, the central protagonist uh, concludes that despair and disappointment are the major emotions in American life right now, right? We don't want to praise anybody. We want to tell everybody how disappointed we are in them and that that's our kind of main outlet. And the person imagines an entire musical full of people she has had interactions with expressing their disappointment in her. And, and it's actually, a, it, it's, a, it's a novel that gave me a lot to think about about American culture. And one other magnificent book that I am reading, which is a workbook, uh, Siva Gutsinski's Aftershocks, about how great powers and domestic reforms, the, the kind of domestic ramifications of great power conflict. And it is hmm. outstanding. I wish I, I wish I had written that book. Hmm. Well, that's, that's, a, that's very useful. Now, Ed, you're very... British. And so, and we assume, <laughs> I think Americans, where, where I'm from in New Jersey, certainly, we assume that British people just are like reading books all the time um, because they, that's what Ed is reading a book right now. That's yeah. why he's not paying attention to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, sorry, David, did you say something? <laughs> I, I'm thanks, just yeah, taking my nose out tuning, of Tuning right in here. Um, and I, but, but which volume of John Locke are you reading right now? <laughs> Um, I've, I've actually moved on from John Locke. Um, I, I was trying, I was trying to think of interesting books as in non Washington books, which is, I assume the subtext of your question, the stuff that, um, you know, we all feel it's mandatory to read, um, it, it is interesting to us, but it might be less interesting, um, 
to people who are not inside the Beltway. But the most startling novel I ever read in the last three months is oddly one written 60 years ago by Kurt Vonnegut called Player Piano. And it's about, uh, it's a futuristic, um, very automated society in which only a few people work and those who control the robots uh, obviously control the power and the money. And it is extraordinary, oh, wow. extraordinary the degree to which what Vonnegut was imagining in the early 50s when he wrote this novel is the same debates we're having today. Absolutely the same debates. Now, there's sort of you know, variants and details and how, what he's imagining. Um, and it's a bit more Orwellian than, you know, you would um, you would project from today having the same debate. But it's an extraordinary reminder that the sort of literary imagination about what the effect of robots will be um, and artificial intelligence on our society has not changed, um, even if the technology has changed. We, we have the same fears. Rosa, have you read a book? Um, recently? once or twice. I and I only read fiction um, because my attention span is too short to read books that don't have a plot. Um, I recently read a wonderful. That's a little, oh, that's a little harsh. I have to say that's a little bit harsh as far as <laughs> the higher powers go. Sorry, you know, it's like God is sitting in His heaven, scratching His head, going, "What? What's she saying?" <laughs> Well, I I just finished a book, um, the latest novel by the Irish novelist Sebastian Barry called Days Without End, which um, is set in uh, Civil War era United States and is a a young Irish immigrant uh, who ends up joining the U.S. Army and fighting in the Indian Wars and then in the Civil War. Um, And it is not only very, very well written and has some surprising gender-bending components to it, but it's also a reminder of how utterly bloody and horrific and cruel and savage America's uh, wars of territorial expansion right here within our own country were, uh, not to mention the Civil War. Um, And in some ways, it sort of made me think, Boy, we're we we are. I, I'm not a big fan of Steven Pinker, but we are. We sure are lucky today that that our wars don't kill as many Americans. Although I'm not sure that the the objects of our uh, air campaigns and so forth would would feel the same way. Um, I'm also reading. I'm rereading um, most of the John Le Carre novels because I I bought his latest book. Um, uh, which I believe is – well, I can't remember what the latest book is called because I haven't read it yet. But I read the description of John Le Carre's latest novel and it said that it was uh, uh, harkens back to Spy Who Came In from the Cold and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And I thought I'd better go reread those. So I've been rereading those. And those also, much like uh, Kurt Vonnegut's books, uh, even though they were written in the 1960s, have a lot of topicality today in in the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and the Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Uh, his characters are wrestling with a conflict that doesn't resemble traditional conflict, doesn't resemble World War II, that is morally confusing all the time and in which success often seems to mean laying aside the very values that led you to engage in the conflict in the first place. Uh, So all of those themes obviously are ones that are still very much with us in our modern conflicts. There is an extraordinary, sorry to to chime in. And you, David? Oh, Oh, sorry. 
Wait, wait, well, Ed, Ed had something smart to say. No, it wasn't smart. Yeah. It was just this one <clears throat> thing. I mean, many things, but there's one brilliant thing about the Sebastian Bur- Barry book that Rosa mentioned, Days Without End. Um, it, it follows this Irish guy. It goes across the Atlantic, and they get recruited. They arrive sort of before the Civil War, and this is very deeply historically researched book. They get recruited Irish to both sides of the Civil War. Many of the Irish did not arrive speaking English. Gaelic was very much, or Irish was very much the lingua franca in Ireland until the 20th century. And so you have these scenes, extraordinary scenes of Confederate and Union soldiers charging each other, shouting Gaelic war cries at each other. And it's just a remarkable sort of image. And uh, I mean, a, a very tragically rendered one as well. Yeah, yeah. That is amazing. Uh, as it happens, the book that I just started reading the other day, which is not a novel because I tend not to read as many novels as I would like to, um, although I do watch a lot of junky television, <laughs> if that offsets it for other people, <laughs> um, is, is, is um, I just started reading Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses Grant. Oh, no. I just bought it. I haven't read it yet. I can't wait, I can't wait. You know, I just wanted to have something to talk to Corey about. (laughs) (laughs) I thank you for that. And for our Deep State Radio nerd listeners, can I just say, if you ever want to stump a child, uh, the answer to the question, who is buried in Grant's tomb, is Julia Dent. Oh, but what is the answer to what color was Washington's white horse? (laughs) it's that chestnut (laughs) (laughs) what i'm so confused by all of this i'm gonna i'm gonna that's because you don't read enough literary fiction david no exactly right no it's true although i'm working on writing a well that's another story we'll talk (laughs) at some other time Uh uh-oh david um, are you writing the great american novel i would say not the great american novel but certainly I'm seeking to write one of the better ones that's come out of my part of New Jersey. Good for you, David. That's wonderful. uh, Setting the bar a little bit um, lower on that, although the whole thing is actually set in Virginia. That's Um, right. I think I remember you telling me about this, and you should tell our listeners about this. Yeah. Unless you're afraid that somebody's going to steal your plot, which could totally happen with our deep state radio fans. Are you saying they're dishonest? <laughs> no, they're just very, very clever and cunning. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that the answer, David, that Risa <laughs> just gave to your question is yes. Okay, deep state listeners, respond to that however you may, or attack <laughs> Rosa Brooks's dog. Um, hey, let me. Yeah, sorry. Um, let's just make this a little bit more useful to people. In the past year or two, have you read anything on foreign policy or Washington that you thought was especially good? Besides Ed's book. <laughs> or, or my book or, and you know, Corey's, or Corey's book yeah, or, yeah, or your book. Every, or my book. Everyone here accepted. There's okay. nothing of value. <laughs> nothing. Out of the we can't cite our own or each other's books. Right. Okay. Yeah, I've got nothing to say. When you cite say. something, Corey, get a little closer <laughs> to your phone so we can hear you a little better. Okay. Okay. Uh, so let's see. What have I read really good on Washington? Corey is probably wants to nominate the Thucydides trap by Graham Allison. Oh yes. 
I am near enough to the release of my own book on hegemonic transition that I no longer find it amusing to read savage reviews of Graham Ellison's book. <laughs> I now can find I, it can I ask you a question? because it cuts so close to the bone. Can I ask you a question that I'm sure you won't be able to answer? But does hegemonic transition have anything to do with Caitlyn Jenner? <laughs> no, it has nothing whatever to do with Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> this does remind me, Corey, there's there's an absolutely wonderful satirical poem by Clive James, which which you can uh, read and enjoy. Uh, it's called The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered. And I am pleased. <laughs> yes, it is fantastic. In vast quantities, it has been remaindered, like a van load of counterfeit that has been seized, and so forth. <laughs> it is an excellent, an excellent poem that all authors can relate to. It is, it is not enough that I succeed. Others must fail. That's... <laughs> <laughs> the book of my enemy has been remaindered and I rejoice. It has gone with bowed head like a defeated legion beneath the yoke. What avail him now his awards and prizes, the praise expended upon his meticulous technique, his individual new voice, knocked into the middle of next week. <laughs> his brainchild now consorts with the bad buys, the sinker, clinkers, dogs and dregs, the edsels of the world of movable type, the bummers that no amount of hype could shift, the unbudgeable turkeys. <laughs> Please, please, Ed, tell me that Rosa <laughs> is standing one index finger pointed skyward and reciting this <laughs> on from a pedestal. Memory. She's actually got a blindfold on and she's standing on her head. So it's, it's even more impressive than you imagine. <laughs> That's our girl. <laughs> uh, that is, that is definitely well, it's really important Ed, to memorize great literature, I, I think. It, yes, no, it is I very, agree. especially, you know, in this sort of schadenfreude section of your library <laughs> which is large my i have a large schadenfreude section in my personal library that's all i have that's all i have is schadenfreude so basically what we've determined here so far is that the listeners of deep state radio are dishonest and the, the, the guests and of deep that state the radio podcasters don't read books about foreign policy or washington Oh, no, that's not true. If you said it, like Ed reviews one every two weeks. Yeah, I, I, I mean, do surely, review Ed, I'm sure you're going to say, oh, I read a fantastic treatise on the <laughs> Federal Reserve in the third century or some nonsense <laughs> like that. Like, you stumped did me, you though. You, you did stump me. You asked foreign policy books in the last sort of few months this year. And I, I was scouring my memory. It might be that my memory is sort of degrading faster than I thought, but I don't think I have. I think I've been reading... Um, political and economic books about the crisis we're living in. And I mean, I would love a really good book that crystallizes the sort of geopolitical fluidity and the combination of what's going on in the West right now. But it, it's quite fast moving. You know, it's, it'd be right, quite well, hard to take, catch let's, that. Let's, hair. Let, let's tease this out here a bit. And let's be honest. No one is listening except us and 20 or 30,000 listeners. Uh, <laughs> Face it, the, one of the problems that the United States has and has had over the course of the past 25 years is that the foreign policy community, the community of thinkers who are responsible for the next big ideas, for the present at the creation kind of ideas that shape the world of the future, haven't been very good. And the famous books haven't really captured it correctly. Um, and the, the 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 obscure little books that have brilliant ideas in them are few and far between. 
I mean, it seems to me that the sort of intellectual elites of the foreign policy community have let the United States uh, and the world down over the course of the past 25 years. Um, Corey, respond. Uh, the dearth of good books on the way the international order is changing and what it means for our country is certainly a failing of those of us who are both academics and public intellectuals over the last 25 years, but it is by no means the least of our failings. Um, the failing to help our fellow citizens understand that trade hasn't stolen American jobs, that the technological innovation is a wildly discontinuous and turbulent process, and that's the nature of economic change, I would put as a much bigger failing than the lack of uh, a signal book about foreign policy. Rosa. Uh, wait a minute. Are we deciding whether uh, the intellectual elite of America is failing us? Yes. Oh, uh, why, why certainly? <laughs> I mean, th this is, well, in all seriousness, right, this is actually a problem, David, that I remember discussing with you in the context of uh, your, your former institutional home, Foreign Policy Magazine, uh, which is that um, – the people who gravitate towards foreign policy tend to be people who want – who either work for government, for the government or want to work for the government or want it to be funded by large grants and contracts from the government. And that makes them spectacularly boring because then they don't want to say anything interesting in prose uh, because it might come back to haunt them in their confirmation hearing or when they you know, apply for a job or apply for funding. Um, and and I do think that there's it's it's not an accident that uh, there is a dearth of really interesting, really creative work on foreign policy. I, I think uh, many have written about the ways in which academia has has drifted away from the policy world. That there is actually some very interesting, very smart work getting done in in political science and international relations, but we don't tend to read it. It tends to be written for a scholarly audience rather than a general audience. Uh, so the academics are the only people writing nonfiction about foreign policy um, other than the foreign policy professionals, and the foreign policy professionals are professionally dedicated to uh, never saying anything interesting, and that's a that's a very serious structural problem, which I would think would have made it rather hard to, to uh, edit a magazine on foreign policy. Mm. <laughs> mm. I'm very confused listening to this conversation because as we're having it, Rosa and Corey are, are tweeting it out simultaneously. <laughs> That's because we, we are multi-talented and we can multitask. <laughs> what have you been tweeting? Okay, well, I, I, tweeted out, I tweeted out for Corey, how did you get to be so smart? Because uh, she said no one had ever tweeted that to her and I, I, I wanted to fix that. I'm going to retweet you. <laughs> um, this is getting really meta. Um, I do, I do continue to think that some of the best books about foreign policy are, are fiction. And for instance, let me nominate another fantastic book, not not from the last year or so. This is this is now from I don't know uh, eight or nine years ago. Um, but Michael Gruber's *The Good Son* is about drone warfare, for instance, and it's a fantastically good novel. Um, that I think lays out much more effectively 
you know, than any 10 or 20 policy papers uh, on targeted strikes and drone warfare and U.S. counterterrorism policy, uh, the various policy and ethical dilemmas, and does so in a far more readable way on top of that. So, Ed, here's the case. Let me make the case in a simple way. Think tanks, which are supposed to be doing thinking, aren't really doing thinking. They're actually places where people who want government jobs in the future go to work to maintain some degree of visibility um, and, for the most part, don't actually produce anything new because if it's really daring, then it may impinge upon their confirmation process. And so instead, they sort of get driven by the um, schedules and the needs of MSNBC and CNN and Fox and a few other radio stations where they wish to appear in order to remain visible. So they don't do any real thinking. Um, and on top of that, um, you know, the, the, the public debate can't really take a whole heck of a lot of nuance. And the big international issues of our time tend not really to resonate, um, particularly the longer term issues, because everybody's got a short term focus. And then on top of all of that, a lot of the really big issues require that you understand science or technology or some other part of the world that's rising that has not actually been around for a while. And the people who do the thinking aren't really familiar with those places. Uh, and if you do thinking in those areas, it probably won't help you get a job. So a lot of people don't do it. And the result is that all the incentives in our system are for regurgitation and careerism and big ideas are few and far between. You may David, respond. I would personally pay folding money uh, to hear your reaction to Tom Friedman's, you know, I was talking to a taxi driver or I thought up a cute title version of <laughs> intellectual contribution. Ooh. Please, please, please. Please, okay, please, please. Yeah, well, I don't think you're going to get the answer that you want because okay. I actually think that Tom Friedman is one of the few people out there who actually is trying to think about next generation issues, whether they have to do with technology or climate change, who actually is a reporter who goes and talks to people in the tech sector and other places. And because he presents himself in an accessible way, he gets a lot of condescension from people. And then also because he's been very successful, he gets a lot of jealousy from people. Um, and actually, if I were to look at the whole pantheon of people who think about foreign policy in a big, serious way in the United States for the past 25 years, he's one of the few that I would say is actually on the money as opposed to the others who are focused on their career. Okay, I'm glad I paid folding money. You never have lost the capacity to surprise me, David. Yep. Okay. But well, he Ed. too will one day be remaindered. <laughs> <laughs> Golden girls so and lads all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. I'm very impressed. There was no there was no iPad open at that point. <laughs> Even Tom Friedman. <laughs> okay, Ed, what's what just throw your two cents in here. Maybe Corey will send some of that folding money your way. Uh, so uh, the the area I was just trying to think that I would like to have a really well-researched, reported, thoughtful, big idea book, um, and it's hard to have all those things, but that's what I'd like to have, is on what technology is doing to our politics um, and the whole sort of frontier of technology, uh, regulation, and politics. 
um, is something we all think is important, but none of us really have a clue what we're talking about when we talk about this. And a politician I was um, at an event with um, recently put put it this way, that it's easier and easier to campaign, but, and it's harder and harder to govern. And that gulf gets wider and technology is widening it. And I think this is uh, wrapped up in the sort of deep um, cynicism we feel about um, over-promising and under-delivering in politics, which seems to get deeper. Um, and it's also something that is universal. It isn't just a Western problem, this. Um, it, it's, and it isn't just a problem that democracies face. Technology is changing our expectation, the speed with which we expect stuff to happen. And it's making it really hard, particularly if you're trying to shape a, a diplomatic response and trying to take a statesman-like approach to the world. It's giving, making it really hard for even the best practitioners to have the breathing space uh, to to be able to respond in the most rational way. I just think we're, 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 we're seeing a fundamental change in what it, what it is to govern. And we're making, and, and gov governance, governance is becoming so speed of light more difficult as time goes on. And I don't think we've really grappled with what to do about that. I would love a big book on that subject that, that, that talks about technology and governance. That's a very interesting idea. Corey Rosa, we've got about seven minutes to go or six minutes to go. N name an area where you'd like to see a big book or big thinking that we haven't really been addressing. I, Corey, you go first. Uh, so two areas. Uh, two books I would love to read. Uh, one is uh, relates to Ed's recommendation, but is slightly more historically based, which is a, a book I would both love to read and I'm toying with writing, is whether there are historical precedents to the rate of economic change and the corresponding political turbulence that we're currently experiencing. As deep state radio nerds know, I very often think the late 1920s and the late, excuse me, the late 1820s and the late 1880s are two comparable periods. In the 1820s, we saw none of the kind of successful political experimentation that prevented sectarian conflict, ultimately leading to the Civil War. In the 1880s and 90s, we saw a lot of political creativity and the beginning of uh, government movements to uh, bust industrial trust, to begin to foster creation of unions and buffers against the economic dislocation having turbulent political effects. I, I think there, I'm curious whether there are precedents in American history or other countries' histories about how political leaders uh, have defanged public anxiety about the rate of economic change. And the second book I would love to read uh, is anything that forces defense experts into dealing with actual economics, um, because I think it's the great deficiency of my field that almost nobody tries to grapple with the nexus of affordability and, and either demand or opportunity in defense policy. 
both both interesting. Rosa, what, what, what would you like to see? Um, gosh, it's it's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that I was thinking about, um, you know, there's a surge of books uh, 20 plus years ago on the creation of nationalisms and the, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the tradition of, of, of Gellner um, uh, and Benedict Anderson. Um, and then that was followed by a surge of books in the 1990s, uh, in particular in early 2000s on sort of the creation of, of atrocities, the creation of, you know, genocidal campaigns. Um, uh, uh, Philip Gorovich or Samantha Power, and this is in some ways related to Corey's first first topic. It would be interesting to see somebody grapple with the question of: Is there where is America now? Is America in the process of disintegrating into sort of rival forms of? sort of horrifying ideology or is it possible to imagine sort of reinventing American nationalism in a less toxic sort of way and what would that take? Um, then the other maybe uh, uh, counterbalancing this, I would love to read a book that takes seriously the thought experiment of what happens when America – that takes seriously in a, in a non-ideological way – um, what happens when America ceases to be a great global power? You know, what does the future hold? Um, because I think that's very likely. Um, and that tries very seriously to imagine the possible alternatives uh, for the world. You know, does, does China step up? Does a coalition of other European nations sort of take over that mantle? Does nobody step up and we have a period of global chaos and jostling for supremacy in which no state or group of states emerges as the the dominant uh, group of powers? You know, it, it would be a really interesting exercise for somebody to, to take that on. Those are all good ideas. I, I stick with my earlier point, which is that I think that our intellectual debate has been primarily small bore, primarily for the benefit of the short-term news cycle, uh, primarily by careerists unable to or unwilling to take big risks. Um, and even with the big books, uh, we we have we have gotten things not only wrong, but I think we're we're missing the big subjects for a whole host of reasons, some of which are institutional, some of which are cultural, some of which just have to do with, I think, some generational issues which are worth talking about. Um, and I think we should talk about these things more. You know, I mean, we talk a lot about what's going on in the world on this show, but but uh, uh, I think a lot of the reason that people tune in is to sort of sort of stretch their intellectual muscles and also think about the areas that aren't being thought about enough. Uh, and that is what we covered today, and I think that was uh, was very interesting. We'll do more of it. We'll also be on the news, but it was nice to go through a whole episode without actually, you know, getting bogged down in administration politics. Um, because honestly, you know, in my view, Donald Trump, whether he's president for another year or four years or 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 full two terms. Uh, is a blip in much the same way that Rutherford B. Hayes is a blip. You know, he is a <laughs> part of a process, and and that there, uh, 
Corey's favorite Rutherford behavior. But, <laughs> but, 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 By the way, know. can I say how much I love the deep state nerd who drew me into an argument about parallels between Zachary Taylor and Donald Trump? <laughs> Thank you for that, ER nerd. Yeah, no, I deep encourage nerds nerd. to, to do that. She's very easy to bait into those discussions. And um, <laughs> if, uh, you know, if, if, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of the James Buchanan uh, administration, turn to court. By all means. Yes, exactly. James Buchanan, who's breathing a big sigh of relief wherever he is. Um, that no, that he's not going to be seen as the worst president in American history. <laughs> he's so true. Now. <laughs> no, it's, he's the the big winner. <laughs> the big winner in Washington this week, James Buchanan, who's no longer the worst president in American history. Um, <laughs> anyway, we will continue these discussions with these wonderful people every week. Tuesdays and Thursdays. Please come back. Join us again. Bring your friends. Bring your box wine. All nerds welcome. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.